Hey guys, it's Allie and Lindsay here, and we want to talk to you about our new favorite wine subscription. It is Winester. The best thing about Winester is that they work with small wineries. You know BSN loves supporting small local businesses, and Winester is just that, supporting real people making real wine. These guys will curate a hand-picked shipment for you from the best small wine producers in the U.S. So my favorite part about Winester is the fact that I don't really know much about wine, and when I go to a liquor store, I tend to gravitate towards the same wine I've always had instead of trying something new. But with Winester, they make the process so easy. That's exactly right, Allie. And from my perspective, you guys, I love wine and have tried so many different types of wine at different price points. And Winester is not only easy, but it is quite literally some of the best wine I've ever tasted, and it makes for an amazing gift. What's also ideal about Winester is that you can pick your shipments based on your schedule. That's right, Allie. So whether you're a casual drinker or you love hosting parties, you can get your shipment based on your lifestyle. So head to their website today, you guys. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R, Winester.com. We've got BSN25 promo code for you, and you can save $25 off your first order. Running the option on first down. Hagan has it. He has run. McKinley Wright from the logo. Oh, got it! Oh, McKinley Wright. Breaks a tackle. Touchdown. Touchdown. That's five for Chris Brown. The defense of Tomlinson. Colorado is going to the NCAA tournament. Stewart with time. Let's it go. He's got three people down there. The ball's up in the air. What's up, everybody? Welcome into the BSN Buffs podcast presented by Total Beverage. I'm your host, Henry Chisholm. Before we start talking buffs, I want to tell you about this really awesome deal for BSN listeners. If you didn't know by now, Total Beverage is delivering beer, wine, and liquor to anywhere in the North Metro area from Wheat Ridge to Erie. For a limited time, Total Bev is offering 20% off your purchase on their website and their app. Use code BSN20 to save 20% and have it delivered to your door. Let's jump into the show. All right, guys. I know I said Matt McChesney would also would like actually be on the show today. He is not. It's just me alone. Still working on getting him on here. Schedules have looked like they're going to work out, and then at the last second, something changes. Feeling confident about tomorrow? We're still definitely going to have Dre on Thursday, Andre Simone. So we'll hear from him at least. And we're going to be talking a lot more about the Pac-12 and what's going on around college football as well. So, like always, I'd like to start this show by talking about what's new with the Colorado Buffaloes. And the answer is, honestly, not much. Uh, Yesterday, Mel Tucker went on that little rant about it being the dog days of camp. You know, today was the 11th practice. They're 25, so we're just closing in on the middle. 
nobody's feeling super excited to be out there. It's not like you're trying to impress a new coach for the first time. You're not playing football for the first time in months. It's just kind of hot out, and we're still a few weeks away from actual football games, meaningful football. And that means that we've pretty much covered all of the topics. And that's part of the reason why Mel Tucker did not take the podium today. Instead, he sent Jay Johnson, his offensive coordinator, who he brought over to Colorado from Georgia, where he was a, an offensive quality control coach. And we got to hear from Jay Johnson for the first time this camp. And it sounds like this is going to be a more regular thing going forward, that Mel Tucker will take a day off and put either Jay Johnson or Tyson Summers, the defensive coordinator, at the podium. I believe Thursday we'll be hearing from Tyson Summers for the first time. You know... We really didn't learn too much that's new today. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, it's the first time hearing from Jay Johnson, getting his take on how everything's going, um, installing the offense. He said that, you know, he's happy with where it's at. They basically have the plays down, the strategy down. It's just about working out the little details, making sure there are no kinks. Everybody knows exactly what to do on every single play. And it's, I mean, it's the dog days of camp. That's what Mel said yesterday. Yesterday he said, there's no flash out there. This is just meat and potatoes. We're out here working to get better. This isn't fun. This isn't, you know, LaVisca jumping up, making one-handed catches between coverage. It's not, you know, somebody breaking up that pass. It's just working on getting better every single day. And you can tell it's wearing on him. And I think that's part of the reason Mel didn't want to go to the podium because, you know, the last couple of press conferences, I'm, they aren't really press conferences. It's the five or six of us gathered around the podium. They were only three, four minutes maybe. I think one might have even been shorter than that. Everybody is kind of grinding through. Uh, I was going to talk to Colby Purcell today after practice, the offensive lineman. He had a doctor's appointment actually. And so I didn't get a chance to speak with him. So that kind of sums it up. You know, there, there weren't a lot of players who were ex excited to be talking to the media today. I think usually when we request, we can say, I want to talk to one or two different guys and they'll bring them out to us after practice or they'll wander out. Uh, I think this is the first time in camp. So I've probably requested at least 16, 17 guys. This is the first time I haven't gotten one. Uh, and I think that that was... The same thing for a couple of the other reporters, too. It just, it's it's a lot of football. And it's been interesting to hear how the coaches have approached that. Mel Tucker yesterday was talking about how that's part of his job, is getting guys through this stage of camp where everybody's tired. Coaches are tired. Players are tired. Media's tired. I've just been drinking coffee all day so that I can pretend I'm not tired. But... It's, it's his job. He said, that's why they call me coach. And he kind of enjoys that part of the job, being the guy who, he, as he says, like you go into the meeting room, you get a feel for the guys so that you know exactly what you have to do to get them motivated. Is it about like, you know, this time of year, it might be saying, hey, you guys are doing a great job. I know it's hard. Keep it up. Or it might be saying, you have to focus. You can't drop that pass. It's, it's time to 
really step on it. You know, there's all these different ways that you can go about motivating guys. And Mel said that that's part of his job and he understands that's part of his job, which is interesting because sometimes coaches say, you know, it's not my job to motivate you. If coming out here, playing football, playing for a future, playing to keep your scholarship isn't enough for you to give it your all every time you're on the practice field, every time you're in the meeting room, every time you're in the classroom even, you know, that's on you. We need you to do that. But but Mel doesn't seem to see it that way. I think maybe maybe he's being more realistic. Maybe he's lowering his standards. That's kind of for you to decide. But he says, you know, I have to understand how to get these guys going through this portion of camp where I know that it's hard because there's really not much it seems like to be playing for. There isn't all this new stuff. We're not implementing new plays every day. We've kind of got it all figured out. And on Saturday, they're going to have the second and final scrimmage of fall camp. And that'll kind of be their last big tune-up. That'll be their last practice in pads before the season starts. Uh, That'll be the last time, obviously, that they go full speed, bring guys to the ground. And that's really the last chance that they will have to evaluate guys based on, you know, almost real football. They're not going to be going full, full speed, trying to light each other up, let each other get hurt, but it's as close to that as they're going to see in camp. And I wonder if that's why Mel Tucker put that scrimmage in this place, because it seemed early to me. And when I first saw it, I thought, well, he just doesn't want his guys to be getting hurt close to the season. I mean, God forbid there's an injury on Saturday, but they'll still have two weeks to work through it. And, you know, if somebody can't get healthy in two weeks, then they have time to brush the rust off whoever's going to be filling in in his spot. I'm almost wondering if it's because he he knows that this is this portion of camp where it's it's tough to stay motivated, where it does feel like you're just kind of running on a treadmill and it's never going to end. That gives a little bit of uh, a silver lining to this part of camp, saying, you know what, Jaron Mangum, Alex Fontenot, uh, all these running backs, and Jarek Broussard, it's been interesting to hear who they've named as the guys they think will compete for the starting job. And that was the other big note that I took away from uh, hearing from Jay Johnson today, is that while Mel Tucker has consistently said that this is going to be a running back by committee style offense, we want it to be that way. Jay Johnson said, you know, if one of these guys takes the job, then they can kind of take the job. And that could be Fontenot, that could be Mangum. We've heard a lot of good things about Dion Smith, which I think is interesting. He's another young guy. He's a redshirt freshman. I mean, another big back, six foot, 185. Like, it's not huge, but... You know, it's big. And so it'll be interesting to see who really takes off on Saturday and if they can get a leg up because Jay Johnson said he's all right with having one guy take the lead. And he talked a little bit about how difficult it is to keep guys hot when you do take the running back by committee approach. You know, if you have three guys you're rotating through, one breaks a big run, do you keep that rotation going and keep everybody fresh? Or do you let him take a couple more carries to see if he's kind of felt out this defense and 
understands how to take advantage of it. There's a lot more nuance there than there is in saying, you know, Alex Fontenot is the guy. We're going to feed him the rock, and when we think he's tired, that's when we throw in somebody else. I like I like the idea of having one lead back. I'm not sure that there's a big enough gap in talent to necessitate it. What I'd really like to see is everybody who's kind of on that same tier, first of all, used to their strengths. Your power backs, you you put in in situations where you want a power back. You put receiving backs in on third downs or maybe your best backs in pass protection. But more than anything, you ride who's hot. If somebody breaks a big play, then this is their game. If if they break a couple eight, nine-yard runs and everybody else is running for three, four consistently, give the guy who's flashed something a better chance to take over the game. That's how running back by committee works. It's not if you just try to get equal reps and spread out the load in every individual game. It's about saying, this game is for this back. And maybe not even planning it out before, but just seeing who's hot once the game actually starts. There is a chance that there's some sort of strength to assigning games almost, saying Jaron Mangum is taking the lead in the Nebraska game because we like his fit against that scheme. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, Maybe maybe Jarek Broussard, your top receiving back, gets more reps in a game where you think that a receiving back is going to do better. You know, your big back against a smaller front seven. There's a lot more coaching that goes into a running back by committee situation. And I think that this is a staff that can handle that. It's just another complication that you kind of have to throw in there if that's what you decide to do. Uh, Jay Johnson also mentioned that he wants to use the tight ends more as receiving threats this season, which is, again, something we've heard throughout camp so far, both from Mel Tucker and tight ends and Steven Montez. So we, we can put some stock in that, knowing that that is something that they are trying to do, but at the same time, I, th- I think anybody who looks at 18 catches in the last three seasons is going to say, yeah, we need to do more. It's just whether they have the talent that can do it. And I'm, I'm not so sure that there's going to be a concerted effort to involve these guys in the game more as much as running a scheme that will get them open more often. And hopefully they're talented enough and can make enough plays to take advantage of that scheme. Those are kind of the biggest takeaways from hearing from Jay Johnson for the first time. Uh, he also mentioned that, you know, he's he's worked with Steven Montez. He's trying to feel out uh, what he can do physically, what he can do mentally, and they've been working together to try to improve in both of those areas. He mentioned specifically uh, trying to quiet down Steven's throwing motion, trying to be more consistent in how he goes about throwing a football just so that there's less potential for one piece of the motion to go wrong and throw everything else off. It's interesting stuff. Uh, But again, not much huge news today out of Buff's camp, which, you know, isn't always a bad thing, but 
it's just kind of what you expect this time of year. Uh, it's time to take a second now and acknowledge Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer of BSN Denver. Breckenridge is the original Colorado beer established in 1990 in Breckenridge, Colorado. You've probably heard of their delicious vanilla porter, their oatmeal stout, and most people's personal favorite, the world-famous Avalanche, which is their classic American amber ale. But they just released a new beer called Strawberry Sky that you guys are going to love. For you beer enthusiasts out there, they're calling this a light-hearted Kolsch ale. But for those of you who have no idea what that means, this is that light, delicious summer beer that you've been looking for. So look for Strawberry Sky at your local liquor store or any other Breckenridge beer. And make sure you also look out for the Breckenridge event calendar on bsndenver.com. We just launched it this week. You'll be able to see all of the events we have planned, and we'll be drinking Breck beers at all of them. So RSVP and have a good time. The Greg Mastriona Golf Courses at Highland Hills offer something for everyone. With a championship 18-hole golf course, the regulation 9-hole blue course, and two par threes, golfers of all skill levels will find exactly what they're looking for. There's a lot of opportunities for families to enjoy the game of golf together here. We do have multiple courses, all different skill levels. So it's a great place to teach and develop. Really a good way for families to, you know, grow their skills and enjoy the game together. That was Alan Brown. He's the director of golf over at Highland Hills. If you're busy at work all day, don't worry. At Highland Hills, it's never too late to start a round of golf. Well, Highland Hills has a fantastic pay for what you play program. It is designed for the player to play after four o'clock or five o'clock in the evening. And you check in, you play as many holes as you can until dark. And then you come to the pro shop and we give you a rain check for any holes you don't finish. We also do a really fun event, Glow Golf on our par three golf course. One time a month, $25, no cart, but we give you glow balls. It's a fantastic way to have some fun with friends and get out and enjoy the nighttime and the summertime here in Colorado. To learn more and book a tea time, head over to golfhighlandhills.com today or call them at 303-428-6526. All right, moving along now. This is actually going to be a bit of a strange segment, but what, what happened was I was doing some studying around the Pac-12 trying to like figure out what's going on in the league outside of Boulder. And I wound up on University of Washington's SB Nation page, uh, UW Dog Pound. And there was a bunch of really interesting stuff in there because they've been doing a lot of rankings, that kind of stuff. And there were three stories that I really wanted to, to touch on because I think it's always interesting to hear what the outside view of what's going on in Boulder is. You know... The the outside view isn't always great. I think if you look through a lot of the projections, the predictions often have Colorado coming out near the bottom of the league, which is understandable. They're on a seven-game losing streak. There's a lot of turnover. I personally am a little bit higher on them than that, but you know, there's an argument to be made. The first article that I clicked on, it actually came out today, which is what kind of started this whole thing, was... The guys at the UW Dog Pound, they picked every Pac-12 conference game. And they ended up having Colorado coming out last in the Pac-12 South, uh, tied with Arizona State actually at 3-6. and six. And the reason I wanted to talk about this, because you know that you're going to see a lot of predictions that say Colorado is 3-6 and six in conference. Honestly, that's about where I am on there. Uh, if... 
you think back to the podcast with Andre last week when we picked every game and kind of made our own predictions. I think I might have actually, I think I did have them three and six, which means outside of conference play, I had them beating Colorado State, beating Air Force, and losing to Nebraska, which makes them five and six, one game away from bowl eligibility. So I don't think these predictions are that far off. What surprises me, though, is the games that they have Colorado winning. So, um, first of all, they open the season or the conference schedule against Arizona State. It's the first road game. And UW Dog Pound has Colorado winning that game on the road against Arizona State, then coming back to Boulder the next week and beating Arizona. Then they have them actually winning the next week on the road at Oregon to start conference play 3-0. and The Oregon pick really surprises me because there are some more winnable games on that schedule. UCLA isn't as strong as it has been. You know, Washington State, you don't know what to expect with a new quarterback. Uh, Stanford, USC, you know, strong programs. Some turnover for sure, though. To have them pick to beat Oregon is surprising to me. And I wanted to mention that, you know, from the outside, that does seem like a winnable game to other teams, or at least to other fan bases. That has them going 3-0 and to start conference play, then losing six straight to end the season, which, you know, has kind of been the theme around Boulder over the last couple of years. So just kind of interesting. Moving on now to another story. They also predicted the Pac-12 Offensive and Defensive Player of the Years. They kind of uh, picked out who the favorites are for each. And I was, again, surprised here. And Here are the top five players that they think will be uh, in the Defensive Player of the Year race. Number five, Paulson Adebo from Stanford. Kind of surprises me this far down the list because... He was a second-team All-American last year as a freshman, and now he's back for his sophomore season. It seems like he he should probably be higher on this list because he is one of the best defensive players in the country. Um, actually, he was number four. They only ranked the top four. That surprises me. Uh, number three, they have Evan Weaver, linebacker from uh, the California Golden Bears. Again, Interesting. Uh, number two, defensive lineman, lineman Bradley Ane from uh, Utah, who's a great pass rusher, uh, somebody who definitely works at a position that can win somebody defensive player of the year because he can lead them in, he can lead the entire league in sacks. Like he should because he's that talented. He's going to be an early pick in the NFL draft because of his skills. But number one, is the Buffalo's linebacker, Nate Landman. And that surprised me. Um, they Here's here's what they have to say. Ben Burkirvan proved last year that the tackling machine style of inside linebacker is now fair game for inclusion in Defensive Player of the Year debates. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the next great Pac-12 tackling machine, Junior Nate Landman. With a nickname like The Hammer, you probably don't have to wonder about what Nate Landman's superpower is. 
He's a six foot three, 230 pound inside linebacker who has the speed to close a gap and the power to get any kind of ball carrier onto the ground in a hurry. As a sophomore last season, Landman led the team with 123 tackles and two interceptions while playing alongside fellow star Ricky Gamboa. Uh, he also added 25 tackles for loss, two fourth down stops, four sacks, five pass breakups, two forced fumbles, and a recovery. Gamboa has now moved on, leaving Landman as the clear leader in the middle of the Buffalo defense. He will now call plays for the team. I shudder to think about the kind of stats that the Hammer will be putting up as he shifts into upperclassman mode. He's a clear candidate for Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year. It's interesting stuff, and I think there are some good points. Um, he was definitely in that tackling role last year, and he will again this year. I mean, the, the defensive scheme is almost fill all the gaps so that Nate Landman can read the offensive line at the same speed that the running back does and then meet him in the hole. That's his role because that's his strength. He's a tackler. We've talked about his rugby background. So, yeah, it makes sense. I'm not sure, though, whether losing Rick Gamboa really means that he will up his production. That's my big question with this whole story because he they were playing different roles. Gamboa's role was not to be a tackler. That has always been Landman. That will still be Landman. And if anything, I think John Van Deest might steal more tackles than Rick Gamboa did. Just because, you know, Gamboa wasn't a guy who was going to break through the line of scrimmage and stop a runner in his tracks. Gamboa was a guy who was going to make the smart play, uh, catch the guy three, four yards downfield, and make sure he didn't get to the next level of the defense. He was going to be stopped at the second level. Nate Landman's a downhill tackler. He's somebody who's forcing the issue at the line of scrimmage, who's you know, stuffing runs, not just making tackles a little bit downfield the way Gamboa does. Van Deest, I think, has is more similar to Landman in that role, and that's why I wonder about their fit together. In that 3-4 defense, I would have liked to see an, an inside linebacker next to Landman who's better known for his coverage abilities than for his tackling abilities because we've seen that Nate Landman has those tackling chops. That's not a question. Um, they don't really have a better option than Van Deest in that regard, though. They they don't have the option to just pick a cover linebacker because that's just not somebody they really have on their roster right now. It's interesting, though, to hear this outside perspective that says Nate's going to be the Defensive Player of the Year. It gives him the best odds to win Defensive Player of the Year. Um, a couple more notes. Uh, I think we've talked about most of these before, but... Nate, like they said, will be calling the plays. He's told me that he thinks that that means it's going to be a lot easier for him to play faster. He knows what everybody's responsibility is. He knows how to play off of everybody on every snap. He kind of knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing. And that means he doesn't have to think so much. He doesn't have to wonder so much. He's always in total control of the situation, which means he can fly around and make plays. Um... The other note, though, is that Landman really didn't impress me in coverage, and that's that's not a huge surprise because that's not his strength. Uh, this story doesn't note that as strength, but it does note that he had the two interceptions, which was they they were both early in the season. 
they were both not really plays that he was making as much as poor plays on the quarterback's part. At least that was my take on it. He did his job. He played the zone coverage. He floated to the guy who was supposed to be covering it, or who's supposed to be covering, and the quarterback threw the ball there, and Landman just was in good position. So like they were good, smart plays, but they weren't him going out of his way to make a play. It was him putting the quarterback in a situation where the quarterback could make a mistake and he could make him pay for it. Not necessarily playmaking on Landman's part, but not blowing the opportunity he was given, which I think kind of sums up who he is in coverage. Not a guy who's going to be a plus player, but he isn't going to screw everything up for you. Uh, moving along now to this last story, which was uh, the top candidates for Offensive Player of the Year. And I think you guys know where this is going. Uh, I'd be surprised if you don't because I'm talking about it and there's one clear option with the buffs. But we're still going to start from the bottom of the list. Number five, Khalil Tate. Makes sense. Uh, He was a Heisman, maybe not Heisman contender, but he was a guy who was hyped up for Heisman last couple years. Didn't really live up to the expectations. Who knows, maybe this year he gets it all back together. Number four, Salvin Ahmed from Washington. This is one where I think maybe it's a little homerism that's a little bit higher than I would have had uh, Salvin Ahmed. I mean, if you're just talking about running backs in the Pac-12 even, there are just so many options. I mean, obviously you have Eno Benjamin uh, at Arizona State, J.J. Taylor, Jamar Jefferson, Zach Moss from Utah. Uh, You know, you can just kind of keep running down that list and there are just so many options that seems a little high, but maybe they know something we don't. Uh, Number three, Eno Benjamin, a guy I just mentioned. I mean, they start this just by saying workhorse and that's totally it because that's who he is. He's going to be most of that offense. Uh, They just named their quarterback yesterday. It's going to be uh, true freshman... Jaden Daniels, which, you know, it's not a huge surprise. I thought Dylan Sterling Cole might be able to hold on to the job just because, you know, he's a he's a junior. He's been around. The quarterback's job at Arizona State, I think, really shouldn't be to, you know, try to do too much, which is something you worry about with a younger guy. They have the offensive line. They have the running back. You just want to put the running back in a good situation, let him gain yards, um, and they have a strong defense. And so you just rely on the running game of the defense and play some classic hard-nosed football. With Jaden Daniels, there's a little more risk. You expect to throw a couple more interceptions. He's the number two rated uh, dual threat quarterback in his class. So... I mean, maybe he's still just going to be keeping on the ground, but there is some risk there. And it's not a huge surprise, but I could have definitely seen this job going the other way. Uh, Moving on now, though, because this has taken a while. Uh, Number two, LaVisca Chenault, Colorado Buffaloes. Here's what they have to say. The most dynamic playmaker in all of the Pac-12 last season burst onto the scene suddenly. In his first game as a full-time starter, LaVisca Chenault Jr. caught 11 balls for 211 yards and a touchdown and a barn burner against rival Colorado State, and he just kept going from there. A mid-season injury slowed down what early on looked like a shoe-in Offensive Player of the Year kind of season for Chenault. This season, he returns with all of his health, all of his height, all of his ball skills, and all of his versatility. 
uh, he's the 2019 version of Nikhil Harry, and he looks like an excellent candidate to become the first receiver to win Offensive Player of the Year in the pack since Marquise Lee did it in 2012. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think uh, all good points. He's most versatile. All he really needs to do is stay healthy, and he's going to be right in this competition. Uh, I don't think that surprises anybody, and I really don't think we need to expand on it much more than that because he can do everything. It's just whether he's on the field to do everything. Um, Their number one, quarterback Justin Herbert from Oregon. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think uh, the award going to a quarterback makes sense. There are quite a few quarterbacks. I'm honestly surprised we didn't see more quarterbacks on this list. Justin Herbert, you know, some people love him. Some people hate him. He's definitely had down games where he doesn't look like an NFL quarterback. I mean, he doesn't play like an NFL quarterback. He always looks like an NFL quarterback. The man's 6'5", and yeah. But he he hasn't been consistent, and... It's interesting to hear that they think he's the guy. Again, not a huge surprise just because, you know, he already kind of has a case to be number one overall pick. Tua Tagovailoa is standing in his way. I think most people would definitely give Tua the nod right now. But Justin Herbert's right there breathing down his neck. Behind him, maybe have Khalil Tate, KJ Costello, Jacob Eason coming from Georgia back to Washington, his home as quarterback like those are all guys who maybe even if they don't have the draft hype that Justin Herbert has just because he's such an he's so obviously in the pro quarterback mold they could be more valuable I guess is the word is most valuable uh player in the Pac-12 just because you know a guy like Khalil Tate he can do so much for a team even if that doesn't quite translate into draft prospect status um yeah so those are the stories that i wanted to touch on i hope you guys thought those were as interesting as i did uh but now after talking about these game changers i'm excited to tell you about some game changing coffee strava craft is the cbd enriched coffee that has really changed lives the reviews are incredible so check them out this cbd infused coffee has taken away long-term migraines back pain, uh, arthritis, IBS. It has helped decrease anxiety, you name it. uh, CBD is all natural and not psychoactive. The coffee is rich and tasty, and we couldn't recommend it more to our listeners. Check it out for yourself today and receive 20% off when you use code BSN2019 at checkout. You'll get it shipped straight to your door. All right, we have a couple, or we have one question on the uh, podcast post from yesterday on bsndenver.com. Again, subscribers get the exclusive right to comment. Sometimes I'm going to open those up just to hear a couple of other voices, you know, show you guys how much fun it is to get to ask your questions and hear me answer them so that you will subscribe. Brief update on subscribers. I mentioned about a week ago on the podcast, maybe, maybe a week and a half ago, that we were trailing CSU by one subscription since we've launched. Uh, I think last update I gave you guys, we were up six. Now we are up seven. As of today. So we're doing a good job. Let's keep it up. Again, code SCOBUFFS, S-K-O-B-U-F-F-S, will get you $10 off a year-long subscription. That'll bring it down to $34.99, and that includes a free t-shirt. So really, I mean, you're paying for the t-shirt, and the subscription's free. You get to comment. You get to read all of our uh, 
all of our content that's for subscribers only on bsndenver.com. We had a question there today that I want to get to, but it was more for Matt McChesney. And so we're going to hold on to that for tomorrow and talk to him about it. It's really interesting talking about recruiting, and Matt has a bunch of great insights into recruiting. So I went to Twitter, though, pulled up two more questions that I want to talk about today. They're similar, and that's why I'm kind of putting them together. But Eric Finger asked, uh, what kind of stats does Katie Nixon need to have in order to declare for the draft after this season? And that's a really interesting question. Um, mostly because a lot of it depends on Katie himself and what he's trying to do. He's a guy who I don't think there's, I mean, it would be very, very hard for him to become probably even a second day pick. Uh, I mean, in the first three rounds of the NFL draft, just because of his size. And that was the one knock coming uh, out of DeSoto High School in Texas was that, I mean, he's listed 5'8". We've seen 5'7.5 sometimes. I wouldn't be surprised if it's, you know, a little bit under that, having spoken with him a couple of times. And that really does hurt a receiver's case. Um, Before we really dig into him as a player, I want to start with this, though. Like I said, he isn't a guy who's going to be leaving because he's... He has first-round draft type, more li- more likely than not. You never know, but that's the expectation. It'd be because he doesn't want to stick around. He's just kind of ready to move on to the next stage of his life, which, I mean, could kind of make sense. He's close with LaVisca Chenault, who he went to high school with. Actually, Katie Nixon, four-star recruit out of high school, he was the more highly touted guy between him and LaVisca. Obviously, that's kind of changed now just because LaVisca is seriously broken out, but worth noting. So LaVisca's gone to the draft. Katie's also close with a couple of the seniors on the basketball team who will be gone. I mean, I'm not in his social circle, so I don't know exactly who he's friends with, but a lot of his crew, at least from my understanding, is going to be gone next year. And maybe that's an opportunity for him to say, you know what, I'm ready to move on as well. Uh, another note is that at, as a f- guy who's five foot eight, five foot, yeah, let's, we'll just call him five foot eight. Give him that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's five, seven and a half though, but at five foot eight, he isn't going to be a number one receiver. That's just not the way football really works. I mean, you only have a handful of those guys, Ugh, golden Tate, Antonio Brown, but both of them are at least five ten, I think. And so it's, it's just rare that you see a guy that small become like the true number one. Usually he's kind of working behind the bigger guy. Uh, next year that could definitely be Daniel Arias. I really do think that Daniel Arias is going to step into that number one receiver role with likely Katie Nixon and Dimitri Stanley behind him. It's a great situation for the bus, by the way. KD, though, what's interesting about him is that he doesn't really fit an obvious role in the NFL which back in the day would would have been a death sentence to his career. That'd just kind of be it for him. He's five foot eight, and he's more of a deep threat than anything else. Um, he can do a lot of things. He is a very versatile guy. And now in the modern NFL, that kind of opens things up for him. Again, it's not going to open up enough that he sh- probably should be leaving for the draft. He, he should probably wait another year. I went through and looked at where he is on some prospect lists. For the 2021 draft, they have him as the 50th ranked wide receiver. 
Uh, last couple years, 28, 29 receivers have been drafted. All of them have been at least five foot nine. Here's the thing about KD, though. He's just so versatile. Putting him, I mean, if you guys are Broncos fans, just because, I mean, it kind of makes sense for you guys to be Bronco fans, you've seen how their offense the last couple years hasn't been the most modern. They've kind of been stuck in the past with what they're trying to do. They want, you know, your big receiver. They kind of, you know, it's just a very standard idea of what an offense should be and how it should run. In the past, Katie Nixon would be a guy who, because he's five foot eight, would be forced into the slot. Teams would say, you know what, if you're going to make it in this league, it's going to be as a slot receiver. And so they put him there. Odds are he doesn't stick just because that is such a difficult position, and it's different than what he's been doing here in Boulder. The good news, though, is that that is not how things work now. You look at teams like, I mean, the Rams and the Chiefs, the 49ers even, they are adapting some of these college concepts that really should benefit a guy like Katie Nixon, who's a guy that you can line up in the backfield. I mean, to be honest, he looks a lot more like a running back than he does a receiver. And I've almost wondered, like, what if you just put him in the backfield? I just want to see what that looks like because maybe as a running back, he has a better shot to stick in the NFL. What's going for him, though, is that he has the versatility. You can put him in the slot. You can put him a receiver. You can run screens for him. You can ask him to block. You can run these end arounds and jet sweeps all this kind of stuff. You can put him back at returner, and that's something I'd like to see him do this year. I mean, we've talked about how LaVisca really doesn't need it for his case. I mean, he does for Heisman reasons, but in terms of the draft, teams know what he is. He's a top 10 pick. You don't need to show much more. For a guy like KD, if you go back there and make a couple plays, show up on ESPN, that's going to help you significantly. Nothing boosts or nothing nothing gets onto ESPN quicker than kick and punt returns. It's just a surefire way to get your name out there because they are so rare and so few guys have the explosiveness to make plays like that. It's seriously the easiest way to show explosion. And that's something that Katie Nixon has. And it's just, we just don't know how much and whether it's NFL caliber because we can't really compare him to those guys. You know... A guy like Antonio Brown, lightning fast 40-yard dash. Uh, you know, a, a lot of these guys that you look at who are, none of them really are as small as KD. That's not, I mean, even small isn't fair to him, though. He's just short. Like, he's still thick. He's not a guy who you really worry about durability-wise. He has had his, his injury troubles, but... I don't think those are based on his size, if that makes sense. He's he's 190 pounds. Like, I might have a half inch to an inch on him, but at the same time, he has 35 pounds on me. What he really needs to do is make plays, obviously, but also work on that 40-yard dash time. Because a lot of the guys who are in that 5'9", 5'10", range, I mean, almost all of them who've made it to the league have been... Four, four, five, forty guys or faster. You know, a lot of them are sub four, four, and they're just so speedy, and that's why it's all right that they're short because they can get so much separation that it doesn't matter that they're losing so much leverage. Even a guy like Tyreek Hill, he's five foot ten. He has two inches on KD. 
so KD really does need to prove that he has the explosion to make drafting him worth it. That means working on that 40 time. Out of high school, I think the official time was something like 4.57 maybe. And there were some rumors of a 4.39. We don't really know which of those are right. Timing a high school kid's 40 is often not correct anyway because they aren't using... I mean, you go to the combine, they have everything totally electronically timed so that the score is 100% accurate. Hand timing throws all that off. And that's what's generally happening with these high school kids. So he needs to work on that. He needs to get that time down. And he also needs to produce. And I want to finish this just by going through Katie's stats from last season because they kind of surprised me. You watch him and it feels like he's everywhere. And in part because he had so many touches. A lot of what uh, the Buffs did with him was the same stuff as they did with LaVisca. They'd line him up, not in quite as many different positions, but they'd throw him in the backfield, they'd throw him in the slot, they'd throw him outside, and then they'd run some screens to him. They'd throw the ball downfield as well. But here's the numbers. These are just uh, total receiving yards game by game through the season. He played in 11 games. 112, 39, 30, 12, 97, 36, 36, 198, 9, 19, 48. So there are a couple big numbers. 198, 112, I mean, 97's right up there. Every other game, though, the other 8 of the 11 he played in, he was under 50 yards. He was under 40 in 7 of the games. Those numbers really do need to come up, and I think that that's why the... I think it's NFL Draft Scout is the website that has all of the uh, rankings up years in advance. But that's why he's number 50, and that's why he needs to move up another 20 spots because... Not only was he small, even though you can see that big playability there, he didn't have the production. And you can't not have either of those two things. For him, he needs to have, I mean, probably, I mean, if we're talking getting drafted this year, he might need 80 yards per game, which is a lot. It's a whole lot. And we talked a little bit yesterday about how I think he's going to be featured in this offense quite a bit just because the game plan will be get the defense to look at LaVisca and put Katie Nixon wherever the defense isn't looking and get him the ball. And so I think that there is potential for that. But for a guy like him to not just make it to the NFL, but be so sure of his chances in the NFL that he's willing to stop going to college and give up his degree, assuming I don't think he can graduate this spring. I, I haven't heard though. Um, you need that guarantee, and to have that guarantee, you need big-time production. The good news, offenses are more apt to utilize him now than they were even five years ago. If he gets put into the right situation where they don't just say, show me what you can do as a slot receiver, they say, we are going to have packages of plays for you where we line you up in different positions, where we get you the ball and let you make plays then yeah, then he can succeed at the next level. Um, maybe even as a slot receiver, and we're going to get a better of idea of what he can do there this season. I really do believe. I think that he will be spending more time in the slot, and we know that he's going to be running more 
of those intermediate routes that will show off his route running ability, and we'll really know if he has it or not. It looks like he does. He has the quick feed. It makes sense if he does, but he just hasn't been giving given an opportunity to really put that on display. To be an NFL slot receiver, though, it has to be just perfect footwork, and I'm, I'm not sure he has that. That's something that would probably take some time for him to to learn. It's just if a team sees that he has enough explosion that it will translate to the NFL and they can build part of an offense around him that he really does have a chance to go this year, and that's going to take a big season. The other question that I want to talk about is, in that same vein, um, how many buffs do you think will get drafted next year? That comes in from Nicholas Geyer. This is actually a really interesting time to be asking that question because just today, CBS Sports dropped their top 100 draft prospects list for the 2020 draft. So top 100, that pretty much brings you through the end of the third round. So these are guys that they have top three or top three round grades, I guess. Um, three buffs made this list. At number 10, LaVisca Chenault, the receiver. Not a surprise. They have him behind Jerry Judy, who's the fourth highest ranked prospect. Uh, he's the number one receiver. And then the number three receiver is C.D. Lamb from Oklahoma at number 13. Got receivers at 16, uh, 23, uh, 35. So these guys are actually not quite as high on receivers as some other outlets are. A lot of them have six, seven guys in that top 32 in the first round. So LaVisca really is competing with a lot of guys for this early receiver status just because there are so many options out there for teams to choose from. Uh, The second highest Colorado Buffalo on the list at number 55, so this is toward the end of the second round, quarterback Steven Montez. It's interesting stuff. I think that there's some projection there saying that he does take a step, but although I do think that's on the high side, I don't think it's out of line necessarily. Then 12 spots behind him, 67, top of the third round, Mustafa Johnson, uh, the defensive end. So those are kind of the guys who you feel very confident in who could really definitely make the jump this season. Montez probably has the most projection there just because uh, you do need to see him take another step mentally. But I feel pretty safe with those three guys. The interesting thing about the Pac-12 really is that any guy can have a breakout season and all of a sudden become a draft prospect. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, Alex Kinney's a guy who could make it the punter to the NFL. James Stefano, he's 32, so it'd be kind of weird, but I mean, sometimes kickers play a long time. I could see him signing a training camp deal if he has another good season like he did a couple years ago. The big names, though, the guys that you could really bet on making the jump, I think Nate Landman very obviously in that conversation. It'll be interesting, though. He is only a junior. He has another year of eligibility if he wants to stick around. But, I mean, like we saw in that last article, he's going to put up NFL draft prospect numbers. He has the build. He has the athleticism. It's just whether he wants to go now or whether he wants to wait. Um, uh, st- sticking to the defensive side, I think Delrick Abrams might have a chance again. Needs a big season to get there, but 
he has the length the NFL teams are looking for. I don't know whether he's he's one of those guys that you think of as very coachable, but I do think that if he has a big season, he could definitely make the jump. Where it gets really interesting to me is along that offensive line. We know that the line hasn't been a strong point for this team, but you have a guy like Arlington Hambright who has NFL size at tackle, who's transferring in from Oklahoma State. He could make the jump. He has a good year. Wouldn't be totally surprised to see it. Um, William Sherman, it's too early for him, I believe, but he has that sort of talent, and I think that he's a guy who, a year from now, we'll be talking about as a guy who's going to be deciding whether he wants to go to the NFL or not. Um, then we have one more guy, Tim Lynott, the it's center or guard. They still haven't pinned down exactly where he'll be. He's a good, solid veteran. And if he's another guy, if they have a strong season, then he could definitely make that jump. Those are the big names that I could definitely see moving on. I'm very high on Aaron Maddox, the safety, but again, he's a junior, and I really doubt he plays well enough to make the jump this season. I think he does have one more year. Uh, Going forward, oh, there was one more name, Jalen Harris. He doesn't quite have the uh, background as a receiver at tight end, but he's just massive, and he's a guy you could trust as a blocker. Right now, though, if I had to say who's getting drafted, who's not, I'd say it's the three that CBS Sports had listed. It's LaVisca Chenault, it's Steven Montez, and it's Mustafa Johnson. Everybody else that I mentioned uh, will probably, uh, at least I'd be willing to bet that they wind up in an NFL training camp. They get a shot to stick around in the league, but they don't get drafted. Uh, We went a little bit long in this segment, but that's all I have for you guys today. I'll be back again tomorrow, hopefully with uh, Matt McChesney. Hopefully we'll be able to get this figured out. Um, As always, leave your questions in today's post. Uh, When I put the podcast up on bsndenver.com, go down to the comment section of today's show and leave your questions, and Matt and I will answer them tomorrow. Um, Yeah, I think that's it. Subscribe, get a free shirt. Let's beat the Rams. Uh, see you tomorrow. Bye, guys. I think they like my Colorado sway. Cause when I'm in it play, I don't really, I don't really know just how to act. And when I'm in it go, you know I'm acting bad. Holly get a bus with my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. I think they like, I think they like my Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. My Colorado sway. Might not sway. I think they like my Colorado sway. Patiently awaiting When I hit the field It's so hard to behave I'm Colorado swagging at the crowd Do the wave Look into my eyes I can tell that you afraid Uh Cause you know we finna hit ya Hit ya Hit ya Hit ya Get a bus with my car.